The Senate last week passed the National Defense Authorization Act, $740 billion more this year or next year for war, death, and destruction. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program, where we go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking to Lee Camp. He's a writer, comedian, activist, journalist, and the host of the television show Redacted Tonight, which you can see on RT America. His latest book is called Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragedy comedy. And you can find it and more of his work at LeeCamp.com. Lee, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it is it. It's the most, the most important commentary ever. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> it, I love it. I love it. Lee, the National Defense Authorization Act that was passed by Congress and now goes to Donald Trump, Donald Trump's desk to be signed and has what appears to be a veto-proof majority once again, make sure to include provisions that prevent Trump from actually withdrawing U.S. military forces from Afghanistan, something he said he wanted to do by the end of this uh, administration's four-year term. Uh, again, it's it says so much. We talk about the military-industrial complex. You know that speech was in many ways coined by Dwight D. Eisenhower in his farewell address to the nation, January seventeenth, nineteen sixty-one. After eight years in office, of course, uh, Eisenhower was a general. I had been the uh, general in charge of American military forces during World War II. But he coined the phrase the military-industrial complex. The first draft of that speech, he called it actually the military-industrial-congressional complex. But then his advisor said, well, don't alienate every congressperson and senator on your way out of office, so just call it the military-industrial complex. And that's how we got stuck with that term. But when you look at the NDAA legislation and the other uh, legislative moves uh, in Congress, and in the Senate by both parties, it's clear it is a military industrial congressional complex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's truly incredible about this NDAA is that Congress has essentially ceded their right to declare war. They, I mean, most of these these bombings and attacks that we commit on other countries, uh, killing you know uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, 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 regularly. Um, is not declared by Congress. Most of it, they've they've ceded their right to actually oversee what is happening with our military in in so many ways. And yet, 
they got very nervous that Trump might withdraw a few thousand troops from various countries that we've invaded. Uh, I mean, I, I've been as critical of, of Trump as anybody. However, in the few occasions that he has tried to create uh, peace, uh, you know, that he tried to create a peace with North Korea or where he said he was going to withdraw troops from Syria or Afghanistan or Germany. Every time he would try, some outlandish report would come out saying, oh, you know, here's why. Oh, Russia is paying bounties to, you know, reports that are later proven false uh, are, 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 are used to make sure he does not remove troops. And uh, kind of an underreported thing, although it did get a little coverage, was that some of the military brass that has left have said that they, when they, they think Trump thinks they're removing troops and they just move them around. They basically behind the president's back, move troops back and forth and they don't actually withdraw them. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's a soft coup. If you have no civilian leadership uh, saying anything about withdrawing troops and it just gets ignored. Indeed. And, and I was noticing, and we talked about this last week on our show that, uh, there was also an announcement that the U.S. was leaving uh, Somalia. Again, most Americans that didn't know we were at war in Somalia, but the U.S. has been fighting battles in Somalia. And it, it turns out that the troops that are being withdrawn from Somalia by the end of the Trump administration's term are actually not coming home. They're just going to Kenya, where the U.S., through AFRICOM, has uh, drone bases. And from there, the U.S. can continue to keep bombing people in Somalia. Uh, I mean, it's like an incredible situation here in the United States where this government, and again, without some loud clamor from the media and certainly without civilian control, the military itself can decide or get the, the civilian government perhaps to sign off on constantly bombing people in Yemen. Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, again, can you imagine any other country saying to the rest of the world, hey, look, we've just decided to set up drone bases in Africa, in Asia, all over the place, and we're going to start killing people we think should die. I mean, can you imagine what the response would be, say, if Russia or China established that as its official doctrine? Yeah. And, and needless to say, if someone were to bomb in the U.S., you know, to send a drone bomb into the U.S. because they felt one of our generals was, uh, you know, not behaving in a way that they liked. Could you imagine the fallout? Uh, but apparently America just our military industrial complex just uh, behaves with impunity. And the number of bombs being dropped is, is, is just breathtaking. You know, Obama's final year in office, it was 26,000 in that single year uh, or probably more than that, but at least 26,000. And I believe they've stopped reporting these numbers, but the, uh, Trump's first year, it was 40,000 uh, because he basically just you know said to the Pentagon, do what you want. I'm not really going to pay attention, except in these few cases where he said, I want to withdraw the troops. And they basically have said no. I remember uh, that scene in the movie from the Battle of Algiers where one of the Algerian independence fighters who's fighting to free Algeria from French colonial domination is brought before a tribunal. She's captured. She she had a bomb that she was bringing into a French establishment, and uh, she was going to set it off, and it was going to you know kill French people who were occupying Algeria. And they denounced her as a terrorist, and she said, "Well, look, let's just trade up. I'll give you my basket with my bomb, and you give me your fighter aircraft that bomb our people constantly." Uh, again, going very poignantly to the definition of 
what is terrorism? Yeah, yeah. For well, when we do it, it's not terrorism. When uh, others do it, it it is. So we we have we are entitled to bomb endlessly, to drop tens of thousands of bombs. Uh, you know, it's like a bomb every twelve minutes. And most Americans are completely unaware, blissfully unaware. Uh, we there's there's no real news coverage of most of these. Uh, there's no real reporting on it. Most people don't know or don't care. Uh, and and. To me, in a lot of ways, that means that you have a uh, massive war machine, the largest on the planet, just running completely on its own. There is very little to any oversight over the money, over where these bombs are being dropped, uh, over you know how many troops are in what area, because as we've been saying, even when the president tries to withdraw some troops, it doesn't happen. So how, in what way is it, does this military, does this, ma- you know, it's mass organized human murder is what it is. In, in what way is that machine overseen at all? Lee Camp, uh, you wrote an article in Truth Dig, and I know you've done a number of stories about this and perhaps comic routines about it uh and again it's funny except it's so unfunny in another way the 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 here's the headline of the truth dig article that you authored the pentagon can't account for 21 trillion dollars peren that's not a typo uh let's just talk about this you and i have discussed this before but Talking about things that Americans might not know, they don't know that 26,000 bombs were dropped by the Obama administration on all kinds of uh, people in different countries, all in one year, in 2016, the last year of the Obama administration. They don't know that, but they don't also know that the Pentagon had an audit, I guess it was the first of its kind, Some for some reason they didn't need to you know, account for the money in the past. And they couldn't find $21 trillion. Let's talk about the actual facts here. Yeah. So uh, there was was $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments uh, over a several year span. And that... And then they were audited for the first time in their history, even though they were required by Congress to be audited beginning back in the mid-90s. They never did it. Uh, They basically just said, we can't. And uh, even former uh, Defense Secretary Gates uh, claimed he was going to cut down on, you know, waste and and look into where the money was going. And he gave a press conference, which anyone can watch online towards the end of his tenure, where he said, uh, I have been completely failed to find out where the money's going, what people are doing. He said, quote, you know, a lot of times I can't, we can't even find out how many people work in a department. Uh, this is the secretary of defense saying he can't find out how many people work in a specific department. Like it is, there is just no oversight. And so then they were audited by thousands of auditors. And at the end of it, there was a very, you know, uh, a quiet little press conference where uh, Defense Secretary, uh, I believe it was Esper, I don't remember which one, but uh, came out and said, yeah, we failed our, uh, we failed our audit. And that was basically the end of it. We failed it was how was the final result, uh, you know, and the, the Government Accountability Office uh, has has said that most of these adjustments, most of the time that a department in the Pentagon says, you know, this much money came in, this much money was sent out, there is no documentation or little to no documentation proving 
uh, where it went or what it did or how it was spent. Or, uh, and, and a lot of people try and defend this by saying, well, that doesn't mean that it went missing. That just means they couldn't support it. And it's like, but you can point to specific instances where it did go missing. There's an article in The Guardian from uh, 2005 or six saying $12 billion of printed cash, actual pallets of shrink-wrapped cash went missing in Iraq. It was flown, we're talking tons of money, literal tons, flown to Iraq and just disappeared. I've spoken to a soldier who said one of his first jobs was to stand guard over these pallets of cash, and he couldn't believe that it was going on. He was watching just shrink-wrapped money just basically walk off the base, and like so it does go missing a lot of it does go missing it's it's not just uh financial adjustments the new york times tried to defend this by saying oh well generals aren't very good with banking and financial uh, accounting so that's why this happens uh th but this is far too much to just be uh, a coincidence or a mistake uh the latest report this past year was that 35 trillion dollars of unaccounted adjustments have happened in the pentagon and the government accountability office says 96 of those adjustments didn't have adequate or supporting documentation. 96%. This is a money laundering scheme and it go. It, no one knows where it's going. It's a black hole of, of accounting. We're, we're in a situation, Lee, where hunger is growing in America. I mean, it's growing leaps and bounds. Uh, I've mentioned on the in the past shows that close to where we are, Montgomery County, Maryland, right you know, across the line from the District of Columbia, uh, a, a wealthy county, uh, one of the wealthiest in the country, in fact, the, the rate of hunger, the rate of what they call food insecurity, euphemistically used for hunger, a stand-in for hunger, has increased by 800% since uh, June, since the mass unemployment that came with the, the government's failures, absolute failures, uh, to keep the country safe from COVID, and then the government's failures to make sure that people didn't lose their jobs, that... The government decided as a policy choice to allow mass unemployment to happen and hunger is growing. And then you think about all of this missing money, billions or trillions. And and again, the same government, the same U.S. government is sort of hand wringing and figuring out how can we make sure how can we make sure that the, the problem of hunger isn't getting too bad? And then they create and concoct a system whereby the government allocate some amount of monies that go to non-governmental organizations, which then have to procure food, uh, you know, hire staffers, distribute food. And then as we can see the food pantries in Montgomery County in the District of Columbia, in fact, all around the United States, they, they have insufficient funds and thus insufficient foods. And so hungry people who are standing literally or in line or are waiting in their cars literally in line for hours to get food, the ones at the back of the line, they, you know, they're told, mm, sorry, we just we ran out. And yet the, the priority on military spending and the, you know, it's the assumption that this is all okay. And again, the American people don't know about a lot of this because the media deliberately doesn't make a big deal out of it. If the government wanted to fan the flames of skepticism, cynicism, and suspicion about uh, this money laundering and this theft of the nat from the National Treasury, the American people would be up in arms about the arms uh, institutions. 
Yeah, they absolutely would. I mean, what you're getting at is such a great point that if our government wanted to make sure everyone was uh, well fed and housed in this country, they could do it easily and the amount of money would not come near what we is spent on our military. Uh, you know, to give an example, the New York Times said that in order to give everybody clean water around the world, which is one of the number one causes of death, dirty water around the world, it would cost $10 billion a year. $10 billion. The budget for our military, including the black budgets, is close to a trillion dollars a year. So that is nothing. It is a drop in the bucket of our military industrial complex. They estimated that in order to uh, end world hunger every year, it would cost $30 billion. Again, a drop in a bucket compared to our military industrial budget. And, and so it, it really is like, if it, it's a choice to spend all of this money, crazy amounts of money, unbelievable, unfathomable amounts of money on death and destruction. It is a death economy. Rather than spending it to make sure everyone in this country has the food and the housing that they need. It could be so easily done. I mean, the, the cost to repair the, the lead pipes in Flint, which still hasn't been done, it's like 270 million, million. That is like what the military spends in a matter of seconds. Uh, it, it's so insane. I mean, these numbers are just unbelievable. Uh, a trillion dollars, which like I said, is including the black budget close to what our military spends a year. Uh, if, if you make $40,000 a year to make a trillion dollars, you'd have to work for 25 million years. So to, to, to even glance at these numbers, you should, everyone should know that it is a choice of our, of our government, of our representatives to not make sure everyone's fed and housed. And it's just repulsive. I mean, we talked in the beginning about uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, who became president in 1953 in the, in the last year of the Korean War. And I want to play a couple of audio clips from his farewell address to the nation that was, you know, it's fairly famous, but not everyone knows about it. Perhaps most people don't know about it. So I want to play a clip or two. Uh, people don't know that especially younger people don't know that the military industrial complex hasn't always existed. Uh, it used to be that when wars started, uh, the U.S. or any government would mobilize and, and convert its civilian industry to a war industry, and people would be conscripted or volunteer to go into the military. They fight the foreign foe. And at the end of the war, there would be a demobilization of the troops and the military would reconvert to civilian industry. That was true after World War II. The military demobilized. There wasn't a permanent military machine, a military industrial complex in 1946, 1947, 48, 49. It really begins with the creation of a new national security doctrine in, 19, uh, in 1950, uh, coinciding with the beginning of the Korean War. When you think about the Korean War and why it hasn't ended, it conflates very directly with the formation of the military-industrial complex as a permanent military uh, establishment. And Eisenhower in 1953, when he became president, uh, he he made an argument which went against the grain of the of the advocates of the new national security state, the military-industrial complex, who are arguing that military spending was kind of a Keynesian form of of pump priming, that it was kind of like the New Deal in the 1930s, where the government was putting money into the economy to circulate 
commodities and to create jobs through government spending. And the, the architects of this national security state said uh, it will not only create a national defense establishment, it'll give American jobs. Now, it turns out that that's not true. It gives some Americans jobs, but it redirects money such that many, many jobs are lost and many, many social services that are vital are underfunded. But in 1953, uh, in a speech which is less well-known, Eisenhower said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. Uh, it is spending the sweat of its labors, meaning the nations, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. And then he goes on, the cost of one modern heavy bomber, this is 1953, the cost of one heavy modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick schoolhouse in more than 30 cities. We pay for a single fighter with a half a million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. Now that's General Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953, not a pacifist, not an anti-war person, certainly not an anti-capitalist or an anti-imperialist. Somebody who's just actually telling the truth. Uh, but I have to say, Lee, if, if, a, if a Democratic Party presidential candidate talked like that, that every warship built is a form of theft from the people, uh, that candidate would be considered by the Democratic Party, the so-called liberal party, to be not tenable, not viable, because it would be too out there. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if a Democrat were to say any of those things, they would be drummed out of the Democratic Party immediately. The closest we probably saw to comments like that in the last Democratic primaries was from Tulsi Gabbard, and you saw the response she got. Uh, she was called everything from a, a Assad apologist to a Russian agent and uh, basically beaten out of the primary system. Uh, so, I mean, it is amazing to see how far to the right our political system has been pulled. And you also mentioned the amount of jobs that, you know, they talk about in the military industrial complex as if, you know, they love to say that it's a job creator and everything as if jobs couldn't be created any other way, as if jobs of death and destruction are the only jobs that could possibly exist uh, from our government dollars. Uh, but of course, the truth is you could have, you could employ Americans doing uh, a myriad of things. They could be rebuilding our collapsing infrastructure. Uh, I already mentioned the Flint pipes. How about that? Employ people replacing the pipes in Flint, uh, replacing our bridges. You could employ people to convert to green energy or to plant trees. The truth is anything's a job if you pay people for it. You could create jobs giving everyone Lyme disease if you wanted to pay someone to do it. So this idea that we can only create jobs in America by uh, uh, paying people to make weapons of war and to kill people in countries that most Americans can't find on a map is ridiculous and, I mean, morally repulsive. Lee, I want to play two brief audio clips from uh, Eisenhower's uh, farewell address, January 17th, 1961. Uh, at the time it was delivered, it was considered like no big deal. Like you, when you read the media headlines about the speech, it was like, president says farewell to the nation. No drama whatsoever. But in fact, 
he was issuing this pretty important, profound warning about the gargantuan undue influence of the military machine, of the Pentagon, of the military industrial complex, and its impact on all parts of society. I want to play, well, I'm going to play the, a short sort of one minute long audio clip from the speech. And this was delivered to the nation. It was a speech to the entire nation. Speeches on TV were kind of a new thing back then. It was right after the Nixon-Kennedy election where there was the first time there was televised presidential debates. Here's Eisenhower saying farewell to the nation. Let's listen to what those words were. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. So uh, it's interesting, Lee, he's speaking frankly. He's also justifying it. He's saying uh, we were compelled to do this. This is, of course, the Cold War, the Cold War rhetoric, as if the Soviet Union, which had just lost 27 million people in World War II during the Nazi invasion, and of course the Soviets uh, fought and defeated 80% of the of the German army uh, before uh, launching that massive counterattack and liberating Eastern and Central Europe from the uh, scourge of Nazism. Uh, he says it's compelling, although he's also making the point, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to play the audio clip, is most people now wouldn't know that when wars used to end, the military mobilization also ended. There was conversion back to civilian economy. I want to play the second audio clip and get your reaction, because here's where Eisenhower kind of gets to the heart of what uh, what he considers to be the most, the biggest danger from the this new military system of a permanent armaments industry and a military industrial congressional complex. Let's listen. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry 
can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. In informed citizenry, Lee. Anyway, it's kind of it's interesting and also funny to actually listen to these words. I, I mean, it's so amazing. He he wasn't wrong about a single word, except that he acted like we could contain the beast, uh, and it's become clear that that it was impossible. And I also uh, one of the key words was informed citizenry to, for me because you have this scenario now where it's not just the politicians, but the entire uh, mainstream media uh, and corporate media, you know, g- group is they they spend their days fawning on everything military, everything uh, intelligence agencies. All of them are just considered they're they're heralded and considered the be all an end all of truth, uh, despite the fact that we see them lie time and time again to push us into war, uh, as with WMD. And and yet, I mean, these reports, uh, one of my favorite that I highlighted on Redacted Tonight was CNN touring the the Tomahawk missile factory. I don't remember if it was Lockheed or Raytheon or which one, but, uh, and they they're walking around just talking about how amazing and wonderful these weapons are and how advanced they are. But in fact, there's nothing advanced about them. It's barbaric to obliterate people's many, many of whom, even when they hit their target, many of whom are innocent civilians around their so-called target. So it's just, I mean, they really treat these people and these industries as if they are just the best uh, a human being can be when it's all been morally corrupted. It's, it's completely a, a moral inverted universe where this is held up as somehow right and just and it is uh, completely wrong to have an endless war endless death cycle where so much of our economy is uh, hooked in to having endless war Lee I want to ask you a final question and it's the final point that I think is so important for people who uh, care about peace who care about social justice who care about economic justice uh, to really, really think about and talk about with their with their friends, Eisenhower is saying we never had some system like this before—a permanent armaments industry and a permanent military-industrial complex. We never had that before because the U.S. had enemies. Say during World War II, the enemies were uh, Germany and Japan, and then when they were defeated, the war ended. And the armaments industry converted to the production of civilian goods, etc. Same happened in earlier wars. In order to have a permanent war machine, you need a permanent need for a war machine. You need, if it's if it's as Eisenhower said, a theft of jobs and you know food from people who need food uh, and housing from people who need homes. If it's an actual form of theft, it has to be justified. So in the past wars, there was an enemy. And at the end of the war, the enemy was defeated, and so then there was peace. But this new regime, this new system requires a permanent enemy. So the Soviet Union functioned as that permanent enemy until it unexpectedly collapsed uh, because of political contradictions within the government in the Soviet Union and under extreme pressure. Uh, That was in 1991. So Then the United States invented something called humanitarian intervention and like the next year invaded Somalia to help overcome a famine, which was pretty weird why you have to have Marines landing on the beaches in order to stop a famine. 
Then there was the war on terror and the 9-11 attacks uh, provided like a convenient tool for that. That lasted 18 years. But now suddenly we have a new permanent enemy justifying the permanent war machine. And that's major power conflict with Russia or China. Again, in each and every instance, when you look at Russia and China, they're not posing a threat to the United States, maybe a, a challenge to American hegemony in this or that sphere uh, or this or that continent. But China's not about to invade the United States. Russia's not about to invade the United States. But this major power conflict is, in fact, an absolute requirement in order to justify this thievery of the national treasury by a self-interested form or part of the capitalist class. And I think people really have to understand that this is my view, that this is the ABCs actually of militarism and the ABCs, in fact, of U.S. foreign policy, because governments are targeted not because they pose a threat, but because the United States needs enemies in order to justify the Pentagon budget and the intelligence service budget. When, when Eisenhower made his speech, there was one spy agency, the CIA. Now we have what, what's called the intelligence community, 17 different spy agencies. Again, all of it a sort of a con job on the American people. Yeah, you, you have to have the, the great other that is trying to get the people in order to justify all those things, but also it makes it a, a, a hell of a lot easier to keep everyone in line, to keep everyone uh, pointing the finger outside of the country rather than pointing it at the ridiculously wealthy ruling elite who are really the ones uh, oppressing the people, really the ones, as we've said, taking the food out of their mouths to put into uh, weapons. And and so you, it serves so many purposes to just keep everyone, the entire citizenry, fearing this great other. And as you said, for a while it was, uh, you know, it could be the Soviet Union, and then it became uh, terrorists and Arabs that were going to get you. And then they realized that that one, the, the whole fighting terrorism thing, has been has been uh, failing to really get everyone scared enough, afraid enough. And so they've uh, switched now to a new Cold War with Russia and. Uh, new conflict with China. And uh, they, they really have to keep that going. And we see that now with uh, with Joe Biden's picks for to to run the Pentagon. They are not changing that course at all. Uh, at first, it seemed he was going to put in Michelle Flournoy, who actually uh, wo wrote the quadrillennial defense review that came up with the kind of uh, idea of, of full spectrum dominance, uh, this kind of endless war dominance around the world. And uh, and now he's put in, uh, it's either Lloyd Austin or Austin Lloyd, I get it wrong sometimes, but uh, who's, you know, former general, former uh, board of Raytheon. This is a weapons contractor put in at the head of the Pentagon uh, is what Joe Biden has selected if he gets confirmed. Uh, so it's, it's really not changing that system at all. And uh, the, the last thing I was going to say is uh, you, you had mentioned that, you know, we're not at risk of, uh, of being invaded or anything. And that's so true. It's well, what is it? Russia has something like 14 military bases outside of their country, most of them in former uh, Soviet bloc countries. And the U.S. has 800, 900. It's not even no one is threatening us. China has what, two or something? No one is threatening us. And yet they have to keep everyone in America believing that we are on the cusp of being attacked. That was the voice of Lee Camp. Lee is a writer, comedian, activist, journalist, and the host of the television show Redacted Tonight, which you can see on RT America. 
His latest book is called Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. And you can find it and more of his work at LeeCamp.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.